so that you can go home and read it for yourself. Um, then I'm going to make some reflections, personal reflections on it, which I'm just, which I want, I'm hoping will be a challenge to you and to me. Okay? But it's not me making the challenge. May God's word challenge you. And it may challenge different ones of you in different ways, because that's the way God does stuff, isn't it? Um, there are two particular themes which struck me. I tried to immerse myself in this chapter this week and not found it that easy, to tell the truth. Um, but there's two themes. There's one, a theme of power, which I just want to refer to, which seems to come through, to me at least. And all this week we've been, and the last month or so, we've been listening to all these comings and goings of European leaders and international leaders and, and one country and another country telling another country what they should do and all the rest of it. And now we have technocrats in charge of two of those countries and they're unelected, as if democracy were the best thing in the world, but democracy only works if you work under the, under the rule of God, doesn't it? Just like um, totalitarianism can work if, you rule, work if you work under the rule of God, if you love God and love your neighbour. So we've had all these things going on, but now we, we have power struggles going on. Um, and so I just want to reflect, reflect briefly on power. But then each of us, you and I, have areas of power in our lives. So that's the nature of the reflection, okay? Um, and the other reflection which struck me again and again last night as I, I read this passion, I'm not very good at Greek, but I read it in the Greek because I've got the translation underneath and it helps me with tenses and things like that. Um, but as I read this through, it struck me that that having, having knowledge or familiarity with spiritual things doesn't make someone a follower of God or a follower of Jesus. So I just want to pick that out, and then it's challenged me, am, am I really following you, Lord? And so those are the two challenges. Here is the passage of Scripture. It's Mark chapter 6. Um, it opens with Jesus going to his own hometown. He's done some pretty amazing stuff. And now he's going to his own hometown. He went away from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get this? What is this wisdom given to him? And what mighty works are wrought by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour, except in his own country, among his own kin and in his own house. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he marvelled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages, teaching. The next bit in the chapter, we find that Jesus expands his ministry by passing on his work to his followers, particularly in this case, his twelve disciples. He called to him the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave, them and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, 
no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, where you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. And if any place won't receive you and they refuse to hear you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet for a testimony against them. So they went out and preached that men should repent. I do wonder what they preached. Because later on, when Jesus tells them he's going to be crucified, they can't hack it. So what did they preach? They must just have talked about Jesus and what he was doing. And they must have repeated Jesus' message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But they went out and preached that men should repent... And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Now, we realise that Jesus' name is becoming very famous. It even gets to the courts of Herod. And so the next passage has to do with Herod's response to what he's hearing. But it includes a flashback which explains his response. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become famous. Some said, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, that's why these powers are at work in him. But others said, oh, it's Elijah. And others said, it's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he'd married her. For John said to Herod, Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And his wife Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she couldn't, for Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was much perplexed, but yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, and this is just my speculation, um, I'm not going to try it, but I guess he said it in a somewhat of a slurred voice after his banqueting. The king said to her, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll grant it. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give you, even up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John, the baptizer. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry But because of his oaths and his guests, he didn't want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard and gave orders to bring his head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Then we hear that the disciples have come back. Remember, Jesus sent them off to expand his work and gave them authority to do the stuff that he was doing. Now, when we're reading these passages, we just read them consecutively. This follows on from this. 
But I just wonder how much time lapse there's been. Did they just go away for a couple of days? Or had they been away for a week? Did they have an arrangement to be back by such and such a festival? Uh, but the things they're talking about has taken time. So I like to think it's at least a few weeks they've been away. And Jesus takes them aside to have a rest, and that's when he speaks to the crowds. You remember, he, they got into a boat and they went round the bay, and, but the crowd, seeing them get into the boat, had sussed out where he was going and rushed on ahead of them. And uh, that's where we read about Jesus feeding the 5,000 at the end of a very long day. I'm not going to read that. I'm just reminding you of it. You can read it for yourself later if you want to. The interesting thing is they had gone away to be alone apart. And then Jesus found this huge crowd. I don't know what your reaction would have been if, you know, it's your day off. And now suddenly the whole neighborhood is at your door. I'm interested at Jesus' reaction it uses a word it doesn't use very often. It uses the word um, which talks about bowels of mercy, which is translated compassion. You know that feeling that starts down here and ends up and just pours out. And it says he had compassion on the crowds because they were just like sheep without a shepherd. And so he gave himself to them. After that, at the end of the long day, he's fed them miraculously with the five loaves and the two fishes. Um, and then he sends his disciples off across the sea. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went into the hills to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were distressed in rowing, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch, that's sometime between three o'clock and six o'clock in the morning, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. They cried out, for they all saw him. They were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Have no fear. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they didn't understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Then, remembering the response that he had in his own hometown to himself, they get off the boat, and this is the response he has there. Possibly because Legion, the demoniac, or recovered a delivered demoniac had been all over the region and told what God had done for them. When they had crossed over, and they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. And they ran about the whole neighborhood and began to bring sick people on their pallets to any place where they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and besought him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. And that little pa paragraph covers what? Several months. Villages, cities, towns, marketplaces. Awesome work of God going on in this protracted way through the Lord Jesus. 
I'll just leave you to think about those things for half a moment. There might be something which struck you, which has struck you. It's not what I'm going to say, but you just want to get hold of it so you can take it away with you. I hope you had enough time for that. It struck me that there are three occasions in this one chapter where people seem to know an awful lot. It doesn't make any difference in terms of being followers of Jesus. So the first group of people are those people in his own hometown. And it amazes me because they know the guy, they know Jesus. He's been an artisan in his town. From the age of 12, he took on his father's business, and then for the next 18 years, first of all with his father, and then presumably when his father died, he carried that business of carpenter in the town. They knew his integrity, they knew his work, uh, they knew his way, manner of being. Um, later on in his life, when Jesus said, who among you accuses me any of, of any sin? They couldn't go back even to his childhood and find, rake up something. They couldn't even say, well, we remember when you went to little Levi Jones and did that to him. They couldn't think of anything. They'd seen this man. And now he's come back to them, and they've heard of the reputation which he's gained since he left them. And where did he get this? Number one, they're acknowledging that he, whatever it is, he's got something. The Holy Spirit, remember, anointed him at the point where he, he met with John the Baptist first time. The Holy Spirit anointed him for the ministry he'd been called to. Where did he get this? So they've acknowledged he's got it. Where does this wisdom come from? They're listening to him and they're being astounded. His words are making sense. They haven't heard stuff like that. This is wisdom. And this guy that we know has got it. Where's it come from? And then... They're acknowledging that he's done mighty works. They've heard the news. They've met the people. Now he's come to their own town. And even in their own midst, there's a couple of people he's laid hands on and they've been healed. So they have all this knowledge about Jesus. And then it says they take offence at him. I need the psychologists amongst us to explain this one, because I can't. Except maybe it's jealousy, or what, or I just don't understand, but these guys take offence. All this stuff they know, they can't look beyond their own prejudices or their feelings, or perhaps it's just familiarity with the family. Perhaps that's what it is. We know this guy. We know this family. We know his brothers and his sisters. Perhaps it's just familiarity and they take offence. But the outcome is, and we're told in a different gospel, that they actually try to get rid of him over the cliff. And so he's a blasphemer. And they just don't believe in him. But surely, 
you've got all these things which the guy is authentically doing and you've got your understanding on it. You've got to look at him and ask why, haven't you? Well, how many people, because of their familiarity with Jesus, don't bother to ask why? I remember 30 years ago here, and it was during the time when people were rediscovering spiritual gifts, and an awful lot of nonsense was spoken about them, and an awful lot of, an awful lot of hot air was spoken, and a lot of arguments which, which had, which weren't Christian, which shouldn't have happened. But the interesting thing is, as people begin to say, look, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, there were from time to time people who say, no way, Jose. That's not the Jesus we're familiar with. Well, times have changed, I hope. But knowing a lot about Jesus doesn't necessarily make us at that point a follower of Jesus. So the question is, at what point do I, have I stepped over the mark and said, I'm no longer a knower about. Lord Jesus, I want to be a knower of you. I want to walk with you, Jesus. This is personal now. This is my life with you. I find exactly the same thing, but not in relation to Jesus. With Herod, how is it? I don't get this. Psychologists explain to me later on. How is it that Herod knows that John is a righteous and a holy man? How is it that when John preaches to him, he's perplexed, but something inside him is glad to hear him because he says, this is real. And yet he imprisons him. Now I think we're coming to something about power there, actually, and I don't suspect it's his power so much as his wife's power in this case. Read the scripture. I'm not anti-female. <laughs> I just say, read the scripture. But how can a man who can see holiness and righteousness in someone else then imprison him and then being trapped into asking for this man's death, go ahead with it out of own, his own pride. I made my promise and I've got my guests here. <clears throat> I better do it. Chop off his head. So he knew about John's holiness and righteousness, but it didn't make him a follower of holiness and righteousness, did it? And so that comes back to me. There's so many things I know about holiness and righteousness which I learn in Jesus. But has that made me like him? And I turn it over and how about you? Think about it. You know better than anyone else. And if you're not certain and you're married, ask your wife or your husband. And then the other one, and I find this even more remarkable really, the disciples are in the boat. They've had a really hectic few weeks, if not months. They've, they've been given a day off, and then they get to this crowd, and Jesus, Jesus gets filled with compassion again, doesn't he? And all day he's doing the stuff. And then at night, when the disciples are trying to be compassionate and, and saying between the lines, we're, we're whacked out, but these people are hungry, send them away, he says... You give them something to eat. Well, you might think I've misread the between the lines bit. Feel free to think so. But send them away. Perhaps they're just being kind. Send them away to get something to eat. And he says, you do it. And then he sends the disciples away. 
in a boat while he dismisses the crowd because he needs to talk to his heavenly father. Okay. And then the storm blows up again. And they've already been through this in the last chapter or two chapters ago, if you remember it. They've been through this storm and Jesus stilled the storm. But this time Jesus does it different. He walks to them on the waves. I'd have thought it was a ghost if I was with them. I'd have been terrified if I was with them. Believe me. I wouldn't have thought, oh, here comes Jesus. Yippee, he's skipping across the waves. I'd say, what on earth? I might have used stronger language. What on, what is going on? Ah, there's a ghost coming. And they were terrified. And then he got into the boat and the water stilled. And we're told that their hearts were hardened. Now, isn't that weird? These have been out for weeks, if not a month, doing Jesus' stuff. They've been with the authority Jesus has given. They've taken authority over demons and mad people who seemed mad because of their demonic things have been released. They poured oil on people's heads and these people have been healed. They've just been with Jesus who took five loaves. They came to Jesus and he said, well, how much have you got? And sort of, I can imagine them saying, oh, well, we've looked to see how much we've got. We've got five loaves and two fish. Now will you send them away? And they've been part of this extraordinary miracle in which 5,000 people at least are fed from this small amount. They've seen Jesus walking on the water. He's got into the boat. The storm has stilled. And their hearts are hardened. How can that be? Perhaps they were just exhausted. Or perhaps, and I'm just perhapsing here, perhaps they were exhausted, but perhaps, I know, here we go again, you know, we go to have a day off and then he gets working we don't have a day off oh he sends us in a boat and here we go again another storm another night wasted rowing against the waves and then he just comes waltzing along steps in the boat and it all stops here we go again oh why on earth does he do this stuff can't he just give it a break for a while now I don't know maybe I'm doing them a huge injustice maybe I'm just speaking about Dave Winfield here but isn't it remarkable that we can actually be active in his service and then somehow or another our hearts are hardened and we miss him every minister will tell you this happens every minister will tell you this happens And then you're going on an autopilot which has got no spiritual grace in it. And you're missing all the signals. So again, having all the knowledge or even being, doing all the stuff doesn't necessarily mean that today I'm following Jesus. And it makes me ask the question and I pass it on. You know. And if you're not sure, ask the Holy Spirit to make it plain to you. The point is, Whoever you are, and I include me, knowing is not enough. Knowing about is not enough. Familiarity with spiritual things is not enough. Coming to and from church is not enough on its own. It's stepping over that mark, isn't it? 
and saying, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, and I want to be open to you. Or perhaps it's saying, Lord God, I'm sorry, I've slipped back. I'm stepping over again. Think about it. Uh, the other thing has to do with power. Now, I'm astonished by Jesus because I'm living at such a distance from these events. I can't, in my mind, imagine them. You understand? I trust in the scripture. I trust. I was telling somebody that sometimes, you know, I'm reading the scripture and I'm suddenly, I look at my mind and say, Am, do I really believe this? Because some of it at times in the rationalism of the world and in the, in the turmoil of daily life, some of it just seems far away and distant and mythic, doesn't it? And when I ask those questions, the thing which always astonishes me when I stop and sit down and just say, now God, I'm being honest with you, today, do I believe in you? And deep down here, deep down, in regions that I can't reach just by, by rational thought, where the Holy Spirit has touched my life, I know. I know he's God. I know God raised Jesus from the dead. I know he died for me. I know he did these things. But it still astonishes me because I'm 2,000 years away from the actual event itself. But think of this, the power that is lodged by God in Jesus. Mark begins by saying Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That title doesn't sum him up. It says something huge about him, but it doesn't sum up him, does it, or who he is. Because that's just a title. <laughs> no, you look at Jesus, and two chapters ago, he stilled a storm. And the disciples who were Jews will have remembered Jonah when God stilled the storm. And then he has confronted a man in whom there are a legion of demons. Now that's scary, I guess, at the best of times. And these demons have submitted to Jesus' authority and they've left the man free, and the disciples have witnessed this. So Jesus has confronted the elements of nature. He has confronted the powers of darkness. And then a man comes to him and says, my little girl is dying, and he says, I'll come. But in the meantime, a woman who for 12 years has been suffering physical and social and emotional humiliation because of a disease she has, which has to do with flow of blood, which makes her unclean in the eyes of everybody. She has suffered this huge social and public humiliation. And he's confronted that, and he's healed her, and publicly sent her away with honor. He has confronted public prejudice and lifted up this woman's head. The psalm says, he has lifted me up above my enemy round about me. 
And that's exactly what he did with this woman. Sent her away free. And then he's confronted. Then we hear that this little girl has died. And he rolls up his sleeves and says, Just believe. And marches off and confronts death and rises, raises this little girl from the dead. Now, Pete said, Jesus rose from the dead and this has never happened before. And he was right. Jesus raised people from the dead, but nobody being dead has been sovereignly raised without God's, Christ's intervention, or Elijah's intervention, or was it Elijah or was it Elisha? So, Jesus has confronted the elements of nature, the powers of darkness, public humiliation and shame, and he's confronted death. That is power, isn't it? Awesome power. And how does he choose to use it? They have nothing to do with him in Nazareth. So how does he choose to use his power? He goes off somewhere else. But he still lays his hands on a couple of people. So they're healed. And he gives power to his disciples. But what are they to do with it? If they're to be aggressive, they're only to be aggressive against the powers of darkness. They're to do what he came to do, to set people free. That was his manifesto, which he quoted from Isaiah, to set people free. Luke chapter 4, I love this passage. And uh, there's a song that goes with it, but I won't sing it to you. I might do. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, which is now. Isn't that wonderful? I particularly love the Greek version of to set at liberty those who are oppressed because if you take it literally, it's to send away in release the having been crushed ones. Isn't that awesome? Now Jesus, who has this awesome power, uses it for that. And then when they take hold of him to destroy him for it, he submits to death, even death on a cross. Because the power that is resident in him is greater than the power of death. And so he submits to death on our behalf. Now Herod has power and Herod's wife has power. I think there must have been a lot, of, a lot of bad stuff going on in that family. I think of the little girl having danced, having been offered half the kingdom, going to mum and ending up with the head of a dead man. I think a few years later that little girl had something to say to her mum. We could have had half the kingdom, mum. Now that mum used some authority, didn't she? And I think that mum used some authority on Herod, which is why he arrested John, to keep her quiet. 
But again, that's just me not being the psychologist, just supposing. And then Herod has his power. He has the power of life and death in his hand. He makes a huge mistake and he just cannot recoil from his own stupidity. He uses his power to destroy. Now then, and I've almost finished. Every one of us here exercises power of some kind. You are parents, you have power with your children. You work in places with other people. You exercise power, some of you over employees. Some of us have power, so-called, in church. We're called to be leaders. Everyone here somewhere in their life exercises power. It may be that you had a very heavily powerful mum, but now she's getting old. Now you hold the power. Perhaps you hold the power of attorney. You're the one who can make decisions about staying at home or which home you go to, mother. You think about it. All of us exercise measures of authority. Then how do we use that? How do you use it? Is it to release people, to set people free? And in your work-a-day life, and your family-a-day life, and your social life, what rules your attitude? Is it love of God, love of neighbour? They're the two great commandments, love of God, love of neighbour. The second one flows out of the first. So that the opportunities you have to exercise power, authority, or influence... Does it flow out of love of God, love of neighbour? Or does it flow out of something else? I have to ask this question. You've asked me to be a leader. I have to ask, why am I doing what I'm doing? So these are the two things which I take out of this. Jesus is awesome. Do you know, by the way, when he went to them on, on the waters... And he said, don't fear, it is I. That might seem to you rather cockeyed English. Why didn't he say it's me? I'll tell you why. Because in the Greek, it is ego eimi, which means I am. God's name, isn't it? I am. Now don't be afraid. Our disciples missed it <laughs> because they said, oh, here we go again. So, you have all this knowing about Jesus. At what point are you stepping over the line this morning and saying, Jesus, I know about you, but I want to know you and walk with you. I'm yours. Because that is a Christian walk. The other side of the line is approaching, but it's not a Christian walk. Do you understand? And in your life, work a day, family a day, social life, how do you exercise the opportunities for influence that you have? What motivates them? The end.